You're listening to the Ikra Book Festival 2021, bringing you fresh and innovative content in literature and authorship. Brought to you by the Art and Radio Ramadan 365. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to the Iqra Book Festival 2021. Alhamdulillah, mashallah, after all this work uh, and excellent year last year, we're having a beautiful day uh, today. So thank you to so much of those uh, behind the scenes that are uh, helping too many to, to mention in a big list. Well, inshallah, we're, we're coming up just now um, for, the, uh, for the final of our guests. And mashallah, we're, we're in excellently capable hands uh, with our next interviewer, uh, Brother Javed Ali, who mashallah is at the forefront of one of um, Glasgow's most excellent uh, Islamic centres. Mashallah, I was there only on uh, last weekend for a beautiful event. And mashallah, um, Brother Ali is going to be um, asking us on this extremely um, fascinating book, which opposed to... Uh, going into the exciting um, headline news, goes behind into the real human stories. And mashallah, what better person to go into the depth of human stories than Brother Javed Ali. Assalamu alaikum, brother. Assalam. Alhamdulillah. It's good to hear your voice, uh, mashallah. And thank you so much for, for everything you're doing. Brother, um, I suppose without further ado, we'll go on and welcome our guest. Um, thanks very much, brother. No problem. Uh, good Is afternoon. That- Hello, nice to nice to see you. Welcome to the Krabuk Festival, and also welcome to Glasgow. Although it's virtual Glasgow, <laughs> I'm getting the vibes. I'm down here in Brighton, and I'm feeling I, I'm feeling the Scottish warmth already. So thank you for having me. Yeah, we're we're honoured and privileged to have you as our guest today, and. Uh, to look at your book, the the recent book that just launched last month, and I hope it's doing well. I I mean I fingers crossed. My publisher is uh, it's it. I mean it it really didn't come out here. It really came out in the states. So it's lovely to have a little bit of a shout out here uh, because it's the first and only uh, British interview I've done. So it's it's delightful to be here. Anyway, what I'll start off is just introducing you to our, our audience. Um, um, Carla, you're an internationally renowned journalist and author whose work has appeared in numerous publications, including Time, The New York Times, Foreign Policy, Vogue, Vanity Fair, and The Guardian. That's amazing. What a start. She's oh, the, the author of uh, If the Oceans Were Ink, uh, that was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award, which I've got. It's been read in this house. In this <laughs> I'm house. happy it looks suitably tattered. I'm glad and dog-eared. <laughs> yeah, excellent. And uh, the the recent book, um, which is Homeland Security, De-Radicalization and the Journey Back from Extremism. So we can start by, if you wouldn't mind, to read a portion for us. I'll start, maybe I'll, before I, I start at the introduction, I'll just say that um, I, I very much saw this as a sort of follow-up in a, in a way to my work on If the Oceans Were Ink, in that I really wanted to try to understand 
people's worldviews that were diametric, that, that seemed to be very, very different from my own. And, um, and to try to understand, um, sorry, I'm slightly out of breath because I ran to the front of my flat. <laughs> but, um, but let me, let me open with the introduction, um, which tells you a little bit about how, how I was led into, into being interested in looking at, at radicalization and de-radicalization. Like many Americans, I spent the winter after Donald Trump's 2016 election to the US presidency with my blood humming, sensing that some new poison was coursing through both the country and my own body. Nights, I'd lie in bed, my hot face cratered into my pillow, my mind turning over the horrors reported that day of bans and walls and regulation rollbacks. My chest tight and my breathing shallow, my muscles braced for something, I wasn't sure what. Staring at the ceiling, then checking the clock slog toward morning, I'd feel waves of adrenaline buffet my fury outward to Trump, to his party, to anyone who voted for him. Sometimes the anger curdled into hatred. By day, I'd been thinking about writing this book. Even as American politics grew more polarized, and American extremist voices grew louder. I read about the paths people had taken in and out of violent extremism in Germany, Norway, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia. My early research focused on young Westerners who joined ISIS. And in some of them, I recognized something of my own post-election mental state. If one definition of radicalization is a narrowing of one's worldview, a whittling away of the will or wherewithal to understand other opinions, I was getting a taste of it firsthand. <coughs> Excuse me. While the stories I was gathering were of foreign wars and jihadist militants, they bore similarities to the febrile atmosphere in the United States. Describing the project to an acquaintance one afternoon, I was met with disbelief. Surely that was a bit much, he responded. Americans weren't ready to read a book comparing themselves to members of ISIS. But as happens so often, an idea once deemed radical is now mainstream. In February, 2021, the Ohio Capitol Journal stated purpose, connecting Ohioans to their state government, was asking de-radicalization experts how Trump era extremists compared to ISIS recruits. After the attack on the US Capitol in, on January 6, 2021, Elizabeth Nauman, who led counterterrorism efforts as an assistant secretary of Homeland Security for three years under Trump, told Time Magazine that the president's role for the insurrectionists was akin to that of Osama bin Laden's spiritual leadership of the 9-11 hijackers. She urged the United States to pursue the insurgents with the same intensity that we did Al-Qaeda. After 9-11, government and media all but equated violent extremism with Islamist jihadist groups. The story was told over and over of how terrorism in the United States had dropped out of a clear blue September sky. It would take another day of national trauma, nearly 20 years on, for many Americans to see what statistics showed and what people of color had long known from experience. The most serious terrorist threat is not foreign, dark, and Muslim, but white and American made. 
like the babysitter in the horror movie who realizes the serial killer isn't in the woods outside the house, but inside the house, the country has finally begun to realize the proximity of violent extremists. Our most serious threats are internal, not external, observed former Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel. As the country grapples with how to respond to the problem of domestic political violence, questions abound. How do we balance national security with individual freedoms? Are there ways to teach people to embrace a muscular pluralism or even just tolerance? What should be the role of the government in creating de-radicalization programs? What's the line between legitimate political dissent and a threat to society? Homeland Security investigates how people in other countries and briefly a handful of American de-radicalization pioneers have grappled with such questions. I talked to policemen and politicians, neurologists and social workers, the mothers of ISIS militants about what propels people toward violent extremism. I went to Indonesia and Pakistan to see how communities rehabilitated terrorists who weren't foreigners, but neighbors and relatives. In Denmark and Belgium, I met police officers who crafted an innovative program for former extremists dismissed by its critics as hug a terrorist. In Belgium, I interviewed a mayor who was finding ways to stop citizens from becoming radicalized, either on the far right or in, by jihadist groups. In Germany, a nation whose reckoning with its Nazi past has put it at the vanguard of rehabilitation efforts, I learned about both the possibilities and the limits of its 720 de-radicalization programs. Along the way, I met people who pursued vile plans, whether plotting to blow up the Long Island Railroad or to knife protesters in a peaceful religious procession. I emerged, I emerged having learned new ways to think about terrorism and extremism, but also with a curious yet marked feeling of optimism. Around the world, people are experimenting with humane and innovative alternatives to the traditional remedies of prisons and armed response. Many of the solutions I describe here may seem radical, but as the cultural critic Raymond Williams once observed, to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. But I get ahead of myself. Thank you very much, Carla. <laughs> sure. I just wanted to kind of start off with when I read uh, If the Oceans Were Ink, and I really enjoyed reading that, and I would recommend everyone who's a, a chance to get this book, buy it and read it, because at the beginning I had certain preconceptions about it, wasn't so sure, because I grew up with a lot of imams from the Indian subcontinent, and I have a fixed uh, perception of them, and your book just completely gave me an opposite perception, you know, it was amazing. It just opened up, you know, another world for me reading it. Oh. Uh, to, to the extent I've even used some of the some of the sections as sermons in my Friday sermons. Oh, you made my week. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> thank you. But what I want to know is that going from there to Homeland Security, what gave you the idea? What was it that kind of triggered? Or, or how do you get an idea to write a book? Yeah, well, I, I mean, for this particular one, it was interesting because I've, 
you know, both as a journalist and as an author, you know, I'm, I've been committed to chipping away at stereotypes, um, particularly about Muslim communities. And I, so when 9-11 rolled around, you know, and, and, you know, particularly in the United States, I'd be asked, yeah, but aren't they all terrorists? And, you know, having to, I'm sure, as I'm, I'm sure I don't have to tell you that you're, you're constantly being asked these questions. And I had always sort of batted away. I never, I, what I wanted to do is like, everything is so negative and polarized. I wanted to focus on, you know, the, the mainstream, um, middle, which was, you know, I, so I wanted to talk about peace and pluralism, not about radicalism. I wanted to, you know, sh tell people what, what Sheikh, Sheikh Akram Natwi had taught me about moderation and about patience and, uh, and, and, and all the other lessons I learned from him. And so, but I kind of realized I was speaking in Texas right after, after Trump's um, election and I was speaking at the University of Texas in Austin and a, a student raised her hand. And this was at right after I had had a very kind of combative um, lecture the night before where a man was like, isn't Islam all about jihad? And, you know, and so having to do the usual rebuttals on that. But a student in, in, you know, in a very quiet voice said, you know, why is it that liberals don't ever engage with the idea of extremism? Why, why are you leaving the, 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 the playing ground to the most extremist voices on either side? You're not, and I, it suddenly occurred to me, look, if, if, my, if I really want to explore um, the construction of supposed worldviews that are supposedly antithetical to my, you know, peaceful, um, peaceful, quietist um, inclinations, then I should really face this. And I should really not just bat it away and say, oh, 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 it's a tiny minority. And oh, 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 any religious, any group, religious or otherwise, will always have people that, that <coughs> gravitate towards political violence in some way or other. And it's just that Muslims, Muslim terrorism, quote unquote, gets overrepresented in the me media. And, you know, there are all sorts of things that you can rebut with. But I thought, wait, let's see if we can chip away at the stereotype of, of the violent extremist itself. Let's go and look at root causes and look at, look at and chip away at this boilerplate that once a terrorist always a terrorist because there are people all around the world who are who are um who are doing this this really optimistic work and i wanted i wanted to sit with people and try to try to understand not condone necessarily but um not condone any any acts of violence but but to understand why people would would be led and how they might be be dynamic human beings who can change I, I mean, you travelled a lot writing this book. <coughs> Excuse me. Many different countries and uh, so, met with so many different people. But I was just kind of wondering: is it how difficult was it to write that chapter about the mothers? They're telling the uh, story. That I mean, that was really you know. I'm a mother myself, and I really connected to them uh, because of that. Mm -hmm. 
they were such extraordinary women. I mean, Nicola, Nicola Benyaya, um, Christiane Boudreau, um, and, and Figgin Murray, uh, uh, who lost her son in the Manchester bombing, are just such extraordinary, strong um, people who, who, not, who moved beyond their own grief to try in various ways to help society wrestle with um, with this issue in, in various ways by speaking and teaching and, and campaigning. And, um, you know, I was fascinated by this incredible friendship between Nicola Benyaya, whose son had gone off to Syria um, and, and uh, from Birmingham and, um, and Figgin Murray, who had lost a son. Mm. And these mothers sort of, you know, where the typical fault lines that society keeps trying to draw again and again is one of those women was a mother of a terrorist and the other was a victim. And they were both real leaders in saying, no, we are both victims to the same scourge, to the same draw of, of, um, of this. And both of our sons were bought, were, were, young young people who who in one way or another were exploited by um by by violence or, or people prone to violence i mean i i found it interesting because I, I i i kind of find that you brought out the humanness but you also brought out the fact that these are young people going and young people behave in sometimes in manners which you know are <laughs> Or, you know, it's not as if they really want to do what they're doing, but it's just out of their childishness or youthfulness that they're just um, exploring basically what's exactly. out there. Exactly. I mean, to me, that was my biggest shock. I mean, I, I went up to Birmingham to talk to Nicola and that was sort of my first um, reporting trip. And even with all my years of trying to think through my own prejudices and fight against any Islamophobic prejudices. I went up there thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, find a very, um, a, you know, what, what would a mother of, of, uh, of an ISIS fighter look like? Well, you know, I had, I had images of, of a very stern and unwelcoming mother, which I knew intellectually, of course, is, is, is stereotype is absolutely stereotyped, but at a gut level, and of course, I get off the train at Birmingham, and there's a a, a woman with uh, you know in stiletto heels with a, a diamante pin on her hijab and 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 a, a soft Welsh brogue, and and as we talked during the afternoon, I have of course also stereotyped her son um, mm. as you know one of I mean this was this was 2018 I think. So we still had, you know, it was the time that, that the memories of, of, you know, Islamic State brutality were very fresh. That was their strategy, you know, to, to shock and awe the world with their, their, their strategy of, of violence. And, and as I talked to her, um, it became clear that her son was less you know, the scary guys that, that we see on the news and much more a kind of Peter Pan figure who wanted to, wanted to help um, and, and had seen pictures of Syrian um, orphans and, um, 
you know, was, was incredibly empathic and made a big mistake as a result. I think people tend to forget that is that mothers are suffering because yeah. they're, they're losing something, someone precious to them. And, and it's not just people going to ISIS, it's people getting involved in drugs, people getting involved in crime, people getting in problems out of their homes and homes are having their problems and partners splitting up. And, you know, these are issues that people face in their real lives. Exactly. And I, I mean, and, and the thing that the one thing I wanted to, and it's especially a shock to an American audience where, you know, Islamic, and I use that in inverted commas, Islamic, quote unquote, terrorism is, is, has been framed up till recently as this existential threat. But, you know, when you look at the issues of radicalization and you, 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 you think of them as an extension of other societal ills. You think of them as, you know, I say at one point that, that young people drawn to violent extremism are, are maps of society's mistakes. They are telling us something about our failures as societies, at least in the West, you know, I, at least in the West, I think. Um, um, that they they are showing us where we have have fallen down on the job in in many ways. Um, um, again, not to condone, but but to understand and and absolutely, I'm I'm all for this kind of rephrasing um, the issue of radicalization outside this securitized and kind of existential threat thing that populists or, or certainly in my country, politicians have phrased it as and much more. I'd like to see it beside, you know, fighting, fighting drugs, fighting, fighting, you know, that it's not so politicized and, and securitized, but, but something that. I um, mean, just that this label as a terrorist attack. And, and to look at it again, is that what, what, what do you consider it? Why do you consider it to be a terrorist attack? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And yeah, is someone being a Muslim or someone reading from something connects them to an international terror group. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. No. And I think um, at least initially, and I didn't get into it as much as possible, but you know, the terrorist is a construction, you know, I mean, you know, are they, are they a freedom fighter? Are they, you know, um, and, and particularly in the United States where, you know, we got into this weird pre-criminal space where you could be arrested for, yeah. you know, trying to get on a plane to go to Turkey, you know, and, 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 and a couple of like maybe boastful tweets to your friends or, or whatever. And once that becomes a terrorist act, I think we're in, in real trouble um, in terms of liberties and, and fairness. Um, and that, that, yeah, so. Um, I mean, I, I just don't understand some people. I mean, if somebody's going about stabbing people or someone's trying to knock down people with a car, I just look at it and say, you know, there must be something wrong with that person. You must have some mental health issue here because why would someone want to do <laughs> something like that? It's not as if it's going to cause the greatest harm or damage. 
it's just a silly thing that someone's going out to do and he's going to eventually be killed or I, I don't understand it. I you, mean, know? you know, I, the, the mental health argument is really tricky. I think, I mean, you mm -hmm. look at, I mean, it was interesting because um, I went to Indonesia um, which has a really, really different approach than the UK or the US um, in terms of, you know, because it's a Muslim majority country and that there is a sense traditionally, at least it's changed a little bit of, in recent years, but that th these young people going off to jihad are just, they, they've just gone slightly astray. They are yeah. not they're not evil. They're not, you know, they can be rehabilitated. So the country has this sort of interesting set kind of cottage industry in NGOs to help rehabilitate people. Um, and I went to a conference for, for former jihadis um, where, you know, the, the run by this incredibly charismatic guy, um, Huda Ismail Noor, who himself had almost um, sort of joined uh, a jihadi group and then later sort of pulled back um, and has since gone on as a social entrepreneur to help these people returning from jihad kind of go straight. And um, so he'll set them up in businesses or he'll have these conferences. And this conference um, was, you know, it started, he was, you know, we walk in and there's, it, it's like any other conference where, you know, we had our swag bags with our pens and our pads of paper. And we were in a five-star hotel with, with marble floors and everything. And he went around the room and he said, look, over there we have so-and-so who fought in the jihad in Afghanistan. And there's a gray beard sort of stood up and waved. And then we have so-and-so who was in the Philippines in the 90s. And 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 um, then then people who had just come back from the Islamic State and had had completed the government DRAD program and were here. And Huda's Huda's whole idea is these people aren't they aren't mad. They're mm. they're drawn to it either through an, in the Indonesian context, I should add, because I think it you have to be really careful and really local when you talk about these things. But in Indonesia, there was a sense that. You, they got, they went into it because it was a family business, you know, um, or they went into it because they fell in with a bunch of people who, who needed defending um, in, in sectarian wars or so on. And so his idea is, you know, let's, let's steer these anti-social activities and steer them toward pro-social activities. And he's like, look, jihadis are there. I, uh, I won't, his language was salty, so I will I will edit it. But he was like, they are blank blank normal. They are they you know. But they they and he's like, look, they have jihadis tend to have great entrepreneurial drive. They like they like you know they they can be very charismatic. They can they have they like to do things for themselves. And so, so he, you know, at this conference, we um, there was a session on filmmaking. There was a session on polishing a TEDx style um, storytelling of your own life. And the jihadis would talk about what their narratives were. There were lectures from businessmen saying, "Look, we know you like to strike out on your own, and and you want to help people." So. 
So here are some ways that you can do that. And it started a long-term, you know, and, and, and the, the other idea was to sort of mix, break up the uh, jihadi networks and mix jihadis with mainstream Indonesian Islamic thinkers, academics, and so on. So it was this really amazing experiment. And, it's, and it actually nods to a wider approach that many in Indonesian civil society have taken. Can I ask, were most of these jihadis Indonesian or were they foreigners mixed? They were, they were all Indonesian. Indonesian. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But of something, various... Because yeah, some people that are coming from uh, the Arab countries are affected by the political situations and gone through torture or, or had difficult family members killed. So they have a different perception of, you know... Exactly, exactly. I think, I mean, and, and what one of the main sort of takeaways from from going around the world and stuff was that you know i mean the old saw that all politics is local i've decided that all terrorism is local and that you really have to dig down and and both dig down to look for the for the reasons in in the local situation but also build up locally and try to you know these top down approaches i mean i know folks here will all be you know very aware of the problems with prevent especially in the early days um but you know you know they're they're these you know like in france they were like for for a while they were setting people up you know people who were at risk of radicalization in these sort of chateaus and like we will teach them to be good french people you know we will teach them to sing la marseillaise and and we will teach them the history of the French Republic. And then, of course, they will abandon their, their jihadi beliefs. And that sort of statist, you know, top-down approach doesn't seem to be very effective. It was, late, it was very short-lived and it was declared a disaster. But what are your thoughts about the British government saying that <laughs> they won't allow these people to enter back into this country? I, I think it's really sad and really short-sighted. Um, I think... I mean, the main the main thing that we seem to have done wrong is to render render people attracted to violent extremism as monsters, and that has not worked. That has just led to, um, tra- you know, foreign wars and tragedies, and um, and it hasn't it you know that kind of pushed them out. We mm. live in a global, <laughs> in a tiny global world. And you know the idea that there's some sort of outer darkness that you can push your citizens into, and that this there will not be repercussions is naive. It also undermines our our sense as of you know ourselves as a, a nation with a rule of law, um, where people are allowed fair trials. Um, so I I take a very deep view of it, and I think it's really really short sighted. Although I I recognize the complications of how you hold a trial when whatever went on in Raqqa and, and, and Syria um, was very murky. So, so the difficulties of actually prosecuting these people, I'm, I'm, I'm sure are many in Legion, but just casting them out and saying, just stay Mm -hmm. in the camps in perpetuity is, is not worthy of Britain as a, as a nation of law. I've got one more question and we'll open up and see if there's anyone. This is a tricky question. I'm not sure how much you'll know about it, but what are you, I'm going to ask your thoughts. Okay, so what are your thoughts about 
two Muslim organizations who are dealing with maybe de-radicalization. One is called Cage and one is called Quillum Foundation. Uh-huh. If you look at these, I'm not sure if you've investigated them or you looked at them. I, and- I, you know, I obviously know of both of them. Um, I don't, um, and I know that they're both controversial each in their own ways. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I honestly, I honestly didn't um, dig any deeper than that. And I haven't, my work in Britain, um, just, mm-hmm. just because of time and, and, sp- and geography pressure was limited to talking to mothers and, okay. and the policemen or two, but it, it, um, I didn't investigate um, programs in, in any real depth, I should say. So let's have a look, see if there's some questions. I think there is a couple of questions here. Um, Someone's asking, uh, in Scotland, we have a famous book called The Prime of Mist, Jean Brodie. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they're always clies and runs off to fight with Franco in the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> yet none sees it as a radicalization of a young person like an ISIS bride, yet it seems like exactly the same process. I, I, I never made that connection, but that is absolutely brilliant. Um, I wish I I wish I'd thought of that before I sent I press send to my publisher, I would have used it. Um, absolutely. And, I, and that actually brings me, I think it's really important for us to think of, of, to look to art and literature and history to refine our notions of what radicalization is. Because right now, one of the dangers that I think populists and kind of xenophobes can use is we're right pressed up against the, the, the security lens. And, you know, they can tell us that this is the, you know, the Islamic State is the worst terrorist threat ever in the history of humankind or whatever, which galvanized, you know, sows dissent um, and, and division and fear. And it, you know, by, by, by looking to illusions in, you know, whether it's ancient Greek myths or whether it's, um, you know, Camilla Shamsi's home fire, uh, which which is plays on Antigone as as um, to explore modern terrorism, um, or or indeed the prime of Miss Jean Brody. It widens our notion, and it gets away from the, it. Certainly gets away from the notion of you know this is a Muslim problem, only a Muslim problem, and and it also gets away from the notion that we are the first generation ever to have faced this threat, which of course is just catnip to um, to those who want to securitize um, this problem. There's another question here is that, can you talk a bit more about the commonalities between what is thought of as Islamic terrorism and domestic terrorists? What are the common traits of radicalized people mm-hmm. regarding ideology? There's, there, there, there are real strong similarities in, I mean, both, um, both lines tend to be um, both hearkening to a kind of golden era that never existed, a kind of, you know, pres- come, you know, join us and we're gonna, we're gonna restore, um, um, you know, back to whether it was, it's the Aryan state, you know, which is free of foreigners or back to, you know, uh, a, a pure caliphate where there are no, you know, where we live in a pure Muslim sense um, so they're so they play on this this kind of um, ginned up nostalgia, 
Um, they also tend to both have very, very strong gender roles um, that are, are seen, you know, this is about what true, true men, you know, not, none of these, I mean, certainly in the far right, you, you talk to de-radicalizers in, in Germany or, or Norway, and they'll say, you know, this, you know, there's a lot of tropes of masculinity. This is how you are a true man. You, you, you know, there's order and strictness and, and, and quote unquote purity. They also play to, to people's notions of, 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 of a need for purity. Um, and both also play on people's yearnings, understandable yearnings for belonging and brotherhood and sisterhood and, and some sort of transcendence, some sort of cause that is bigger than yourself. And I think one of the reasons that both have, have been popular is, um, is, you know, there are young people who want to believe in something, who want something bigger than a job at Ikea or at, you know, at the corner, corner store. And that, that kind of yearning for transcendence is always going to be there. Um, and we have to, we have to think about this as, as, as a society of like, how are we failing people who, who want these things? Mm. There's another question is that, what do you think makes uh, effective de-radicalization? I think it depends. Um, I found some really, um, I, I, the, the, the place that I always cite is actually in Pakistan. It's um, in the Swat Valley where um, a, a, a psychologist from Lahore um, working with the Pakistani military, uh, but no, no, the military like drop off the people I shouldn't say working with, but she was certainly, um, they, they said that they would funnel the, the Taliban, the ex-Taliban to her school and then leave her to do her work. But these were young boys. It's a boarding school in SWAT um, that, you know, is re reminiscent of many boarding schools, except it's probably kinder and gentler. And it took these, you know, young, young men and boys um, and, you know, it was willing. The, the reason I think it's so successful and I, you know, other, you know, academics who study de-radicalization have cited this as the best de-radicalization program in the world. Um, they haven't had, they've had very, very, very low recidiv recidivism rates, um, is this kind of wraparound approach. She's in it for the long haul. Um, they're willing to, to, to work with these young men for years and years and years. And they, they also follow them after they graduate from the school. So they will go back to the villages or they'll go to the university if the boys want to study at university, and many have, it's excellent, um, and, and work with the village elders to get, to get them, to get the community to accept the returning Talib, um, ex-Talib. And um, so that kind of long-term commitment and willingness to tailor rehabilitation boy by boy by boy, even though they all, you know, at first, um, Fariha, who, who's Fariha Paracha, who started this, said, you know, we, we figured they were all poor. They were from the Swat Valley. And so that we could just we could just de-radicalize them all in the same way. And then she realized that even, you know, um, even though they shared the same socioeconomic things, they really had to tailor every program to 
each boy's particular experience. So it's, it's slow, hard work, um, but it's a heck of a lot more um, humane, I think, than some of the hardline security alternatives. There's another question here. What do you think is more effective in limiting radicalization, education or industrialization? Industrialization? Yeah, you understand that. But <laughs> I'm not sure I understand it. Um, can you, um, education or industrial? You mean sort of economic growth? Eco maybe, maybe. Uh, having more jobs. Okay, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, I think it depends on where it is. Um, more fa okay, okay, thank you. <laughs> um, I think it depends on uh, on on where it is. I think um, you know you've got one of the main reasons. Um, and Sarah Chase has written a terrific book on this. She was looking at um, the links between corruption and violent extremism. Um, you know where you could even have a, a very you know, she looked at Nigeria and Afghanistan and, you know, you you get you get a corrupt government system and you'll get people who will join militant groups um, opposing the system. It's not, you know. So, again, I it's it's hard to say. I mean, I think both education and jobs are really, really important. But if you don't have that in um a system where there is justice and equal opportunity, um, you know, all the jobs in the world and all the education in the world will not necessarily um, get people get people um, on uh, will will diminish the lure of, of of militancy. It's another question here. As a teacher, is often young people with low self-esteem who get caught up in this kind of radicalization. Mm -hmm. How do you edu educate these young people? Oh my word! Uh, well, um, I think, I mean, I guess this gets back to um, you know, this gets back to the notion of responsibility. Like we all, we all have, and that's why I started the book at, with the mothers because mothers do a lot of things that I think successful rehabilitation programs do. They have, they have faith in their children. They, they take the long view. They knew their kids before, uh, before they became so quote unquote terrorists. And they, and they, they believe in their ability to change um, afterwards and they take responsibility. You know, I, it, it's above my pay grade and I'm sure teachers have much more um, experience on helping build kids um, self-esteem than, than, than I do. Um, but I do think a lot of what this is calling out for is a sense of a collective responsibility society wide for looking out for, for young people in ways that they, they aren't, you know, I look at my kids having gone through, you know, a school system that seems designed for a very narrow notion of what success is and a very narrow notion of what intelligence is. Um, and keeping your self-esteem, you know, alive if you don't happen to fit into that, that um, particular paradigm is, is tricky. So in a weird way, I feel like we have to look for, um, we have to look for inspiration in unexpected places. Like when I, 
when I went to Belgium and saw this incredible leader of, of a mayor of a small Belgian town, and he was looking at the built community. He was looking at how the policemen parked their cars or didn't park their cars or, um, you know, whether they were aggressive or, or not aggressive. So there are all sorts of things that we haven't really tackled, you know, as, as ways to kind of rehabilitate all of society um, rather than just the people who are drawn to these groups. Mm. Sorry. I just, no, no, that's no. Thank you so much. Um, just one last question is that, has the British government contacted you yet? <laughs> <laughs> no. No, no, uh, um, not not at all, not at all. I, I would be, yeah. <laughs> I, there there are a couple of desks I definitely would like to get my book on. Uh, uh, yeah, front and center. You know, if it could, if it could, uh, yeah. But uh, but no, not yet. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I'd like to mention again the book Homeland Security. And uh, if you manage to get this book, it's a wonderful book. It's well written. Uh, and also it's got the humanness that we actually need that's discussed right the way through it and there's lots of wisdom and lessons that we can kind of pick up from this book so please try and get a hold of it and thank you again Carla it was oh. wonderful to have you on and hopefully we could have you in person sometime in the near future and uh, hopefully go through your books again I'd love that I'd love that. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's, it's a, a, a wonderful, um, yeah, the Ikra Book Festival looks amazing. So, yeah, thank you. For more podcasts, search for RR365 wherever you get your podcasts.